Hello everyone and welcome to That Time When, the comedy history podcast where we tell you about strange things that happened in history. I am your host once again, Barnaby King, and joining me as ever is Amelia Edwards. Hi. Hello. So, last time we were talking about Jack Shepard. We were. A man from the 18th century who managed to escape prison four times in less than a year. Yeah. He was pretty cool. I liked him. Yeah, he was pretty cool. And during the course of that, he kind of had an antagonist. He did. A man by the name of Jonathan Wild, a.k.a. the Thief Taker General. Did we say that was his name? I don't actually know if I did. I don't think you did, but that's an incredible name. <laughs> it sounds like the Witchfinder General. I mean, yeah. Which I'm much. assuming means it's not an official title at all. Oh, absolutely not. Amazing. No. But I did mention that he deserves his own episode. So we're kind of, we're going out of our regular, you know, back and forth order. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this week I'm going to do that episode on Jonathan Wilde because, oh boy, he is interesting and it's... It's one of these situations where the story is so, like, Hollywood. Okay. Like, it, it, it looks it looks like this, that what actually happened was like a film or a TV series or something like that. Yeah. And it, you, you just can't quite believe it. It's We've like, had a few of, those, have, uh, of yeah. those people turn up. Like, who did we have? We had the woman who lived who mimicked Aretha Franklin. Yes, absolutely, yeah. And her life was just so film, like, so film. Yeah. Like, why is that not a film yet? (laughs) And then we had also Josephine Baker. Yep, absolutely. Dying, surrounded by her, like... Her critiques. Her critiques, yeah. Yes, amazing. So, yeah, that was pretty amazing. And to be honest, Jonathan Wilde, he is, he falls into the same category because reading it's just sort of like, I don't, get how this happens right yeah (laughs) i love it when that happens and we spend ages like double checking if something looks absolutely bonkers yeah this is the thing as soon as i read something from one thing and i'm like that doesn't sound right first thing i do is i start googling around with the keywords to try and find you know other places to back it up and then it turns out that jonathan wilde ruined your life by having a filmatic life (laughs) yeah how dare he So, yeah, this week we are going to talk about Jonathan Wilde. He was born around 1683 in Wolverhampton, or possibly in a nearby village. It's a bit unclear. Sure. Uh, Wolverhampton was actually the second largest town in Staffordshire at the time, but despite that, it was still pretty deprived. Sure. I can't say I know much about Staffordshire. That's fair. Well, Jonathan Wilde, he was the eldest of five children. Mm -hmm. Uh, His father was a carpenter. Oh my God, why are there so many carpenters in this story? It was just a popular job. I guess so. You needed carpentry work. And his mother, uh, she was a costermonger. Oh, cool. Which is a word that I hadn't heard before. Uh, Have you heard of a costermonger? Yes. Yes. I've heard of a costermonger because I think that's where Costa Coffee comes from. I think it was Costa, like, they originally were costermongers. Oh, well, this is Costa, C-O-S-T-E-R. Oh, okay. So, I don't know, maybe, maybe they just thought, you know, the A was sexier. (laughs) It's more Italian. (laughs) Ah, yes, yeah. Whereas their coffee is not. No. (laughs) Come fight me, Costa. Uh, Your coffee is shit. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) Well, anyway, a costermonger is the term for someone who basically sells stuff on a street stall. Mm Mm-hmm. And she would sell fruit and herbs, basically. So these are these are neither professions that are going to make you a huge amount of money in the late 1600s. No. So obviously, being very poor, the only education that uh, Jonathan Wilde could get was at a local free school. Okay. Um, And it was here that he kind of excelled. He learned to read and write, and he was basically known as being uncommonly intelligent. Okay. Uh, to the point where it, some people considered that he might be a genius. Oh, really? Yeah. And one of the things that he liked to do with this genius is play pranks on his fellow children. Oh, my God. Okay. 
Now <laughs> we all know that kid. <laughs> yeah, basically, he just used his cleverness to just mess around with other with other kids, and uh, it's because he wasn't being stretched enough. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, he probably wasn't. They needed more extension tasks for him. <laughs> yeah, but um, people point out that despite this, and so, like in one of the early biographies of his life, he was described as a roguish child because of this. But I, <laughs> I think this doesn't really sort of match up with, you know, the criminal that he's going to become. It seems like when he was a young man, he was, you know, just kind of there, chilling, pootling along. Being super intelligent. Yeah. Being like, my parents don't understand me. My mum just wants <laughs> to talk about herbs. <laughs> Well, in order to help support the family, uh, at the age of 15, I believe, now Mm -hmm. I'll talk about that in a moment. Okay. Uh, At the age of 15, he was apprenticed to a buckle maker. Cool. In Birmingham. So... uh, That sounds like it's going to be really boring for him. I mean, I imagine so. Uh, And this apprenticeship lasted seven years. Yeah. uh, As did Jack Shepard's. I think that was a common length of time for apprenticeships. Yeah, And uh, it seemed like he did very well. There are no indications that, you know, he got into bad ways or anything like that. You mean he wasn't seduced by a woman? Not yet. Oh, okay. (laughs) We'll get to that. Okay, but no no woman managed to seduce him during the time when he was doing his apprenticeship, unlike Jack Shepard. No. So he uh, finished his apprenticeship and he returned to Wolverhampton. He set up his own business. He got married and he had a son. Oh, okay. But we already know... And our listeners should know, if you listened last week, that Jonathan Wilde was not a nice person. And if you didn't listen to last week's, what the f*** are you doing? <laughs> I know. Listen to last week's. I know. Go back. Go listen to that one. And give us five stars on Spotify. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, Jonathan Wilde was not nice. So it should come as little surprise to hear that he abandoned his wife and child so that he could go make his fortune in London. Okay. I've seen some suggestions that he did return to Wolverhampton for a period of a couple of years, but I couldn't confirm this. And even the places that said this didn't say what it was he was doing there when he went back. So I don't know. It's possible that he went back. I mean, like people did leave their wives and children in places while they went to London. Look at Shakespeare. True, but this was definitely he abandoned them oh, okay, okay. for reasons that we'll get to later. So it's why I think it's odd that he would go back. It is possible, though, that he was fleeing debtors. Okay. Because he did not have a great time initially in London. But before we go on to that, I'll just have a, a, little, a little thing just talking about the timeline and stuff, because... I couldn't find a consensus on the years that some of the things in this story happened. Okay. And it, it's odd. Usually there's a broad consensus and like maybe a few outliers say something different. But this was all... I couldn't get a timeline properly in my head. Okay. So apparently he fled to London in the year 1704. Okay. But... His apprenticeship was for seven years, and it says that he was apprenticed at the usual age, which is 15. Right. So, if he was apprenticed and completed his apprenticeship, he would have been 22 in 1704. Okay. Which meant that in the space of a year, he set up a business, Mm -hmm. got married, Mm -hmm. and had a son. Mm. Which is not impossible, but seems unlikely. Yeah, Okay, so you're taking it from the fact that they say the usual age. Uh, yes, some places mm. explicitly said sort of 15. at the age of 15, yeah. Okay, because I'm just thinking like 15 is actually maybe like it could be a little late depending on which kind of family and household you're in to mm. apprentice a kid. I suppose like, so. Like you could probably apprentice people from... 12, for instance? True. Uh, I didn't include this in my notes uh, because it was one of those ones that I couldn't properly confirm. But there was also some suggestions that at an earlier age, he was kind of semi-apprentice to his father. Oh, right. Okay. So he was working. Yeah. 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 See, I was just thinking like, it would be kind of weird to have that sort of period where kids aren't being educated because they've learned how to read and write. But... They're not being told to do anything no, I in think a poor household. He, I think he was busy. Okay. 
um, but then was sent away because, you know, more opportunities. Okay. I mean, so, maybe he maybe he knocked up this lady before he finished his apprenticeship, <laughs> then got married, then fled. But he, like, he met her, I believe, back in Wolverhampton. Yeah. So he was in Birmingham during his apprenticeship. Oh. So, oh, I don't know. No, People I, did move around. There. I know, I know. But this is the thing. It's yeah. just, it's a little bit confusing. There's also a thing later where a lot seems to happen in about three years. But anyway. Let's blame it on it being the early 1700s and he's not a super famous person. Yeah, I think that's probably the easiest way to get around yeah. it. So as I said, uh, he may well have been fleeing debtors in London because it seems that when Jonathan Wilde first arrived in London, he started leading a bit of an extravagant lifestyle. Oh no. And he did not... I know that feeling. (laughs) (laughs) Get to London, you're like, ooh. (laughs) All the ethnic food. To to be fair, you get to London now and you're like, oh, I'm going to live this extravagant lifestyle. And it's like, how much for rent? (laughs) (laughs) Everything's an extravagant lifestyle. I mean, true, yes. Just existing is an extravagant lifestyle in London. (laughs) Very true. Um, So he did not have the income to support this lifestyle. So he ended up in debt. Mm -hmm. And in 1710, he was sent to Wood Street Compter, a debtor's prison. Oh, great. I love the debtor's prisons. Yeah. In in the sense that I hate them. Well, yes, they were dreadful places. Uh, They were known, the prison guards at debtor's prisons were known to be corrupt Mm-hmm. And those at Wood Street Compter were particularly corrupt. Oh, nice. Apparently, affording yourself any sort of uh, luxuries, mm. which I don't know what that meant, but I'm imagining A it. A pillow. Could mean, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you basically have to pay the guards or do something for them. Great. And to be honest, Jonathan Wilde kind of did that. Mm. Uh, he started becoming known as someone who was really good at doing errands for people. So he started making a little money doing errands for the guards. Okay. And this actually, he was so assiduous in his work that he was given the liberty of the gate. Oh my God. Which allowed him to go out at night and help the thief takers in apprehending criminals. That's mad. Yeah. Now, there is kind of a reason for this, and I'll get to it a bit later, because the concept of the thief-takers are actually really interesting to me. Yeah. So we can kind of use it as a general term for kind of, you know, vigilantes, people Mm -hmm. sort of going out and just taking the law into their own hands, as it were. But thief-takers was... Being a thief-taker was kind of a profession. Right. um, Because at this point, obviously, there was no police force uh, in the country. Mm. So what you would have is effectively private policemen known as thief-takers. Okay. Is this a bit like... Oh, what am I thinking about? Um... Who are those people who... Like bounty hunters? Yes, is it like a bounty hunter? Yes, it is hunter? very much like bounty hunters. Uh, thief takers were paid per criminal that they caught. Right. So, and they, they were paid a pretty hefty sum. But again, we're, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Okay, okay. Because while he was in debtor's prison, he also learned something else. He learned about the criminal underworld. Great. Recidivism. Well, yes, absolutely. But he learned about like how it worked, who people were. Mm-hmm. And this was partly because he met a woman. Oh, really? And she seduced him? Well, according to Daniel Defoe... Oh, yes. Daniel Defoe. I mean, <laughs> what a man to sensationalise I know. Uh, the woman's name was Mary Milliner. Uh, sometimes known as Mary Molyneux. Okay. And she was a pickpocket and prostitute. Great. And according to Daniel Defoe, uh, she brought him into her own gang, whether of thieves or whores or of both, is not much material. Great. (laughs) I would like to interject here. Yeah. And just mention that I read a book last year about the women who were killed by Jack the Ripper. Yeah. Um, And this points out that there was a tendency for everybody to assume that women of a certain class were prostitutes. Yeah. Um, I, there is some very compelling evidence to suggest that Mary Milliner was a prostitute. Okay. I just felt like this was worth addressing given that the woman is a a pickpocket. Yeah, absolutely fair. But I think that that we'll get to that. Okay. Okay. (laughs) I do that a lot, I know. That's fair. Uh, And again, this kind of links him with Jack Shepard, who had a similar sort of experience Mm -hmm. with Edgeworth Bess. Yeah. 
uh, or at least that's kind of the suggestion. And it's quite possible that this is just some misogyny. They're like, you know, nice young men being seduced and <laughs> into a life of crime or whatever. Yeah. So it might all be bollocks. But either way, Wilde definitely got to know Mary Milliner and they became close. Okay. By 1712, Wilde had enough criminal contacts and had earned enough money that he was able to be released from debtor's prison. Oh, awesome. So they've made him from a man who's in debt into a proper criminal. Oh, absolutely. Wonderful. And he and Mary immediately begin working together as partners in crime. Fabulous, yes. They also started living together, apparently as husband and wife. Okay. Although that wasn't an official marriage and both of them were still technically married to other people. Awesome, yep. But Wilde doesn't seem to be too concerned about this sort of thing. I mean, yeah, I mean, we've already looked at um, the number of women that people like Robert Burns got together with later on and the number of women that he might have been married to, possibly. Like, it all seems vague. Jonathan Wilde has a very similar sort of thing going on. Uh, We'll get to it later. He ends up with multiple wives We have very little information about them because I don't think he really felt they were very important in his life. Right. It's really quite sad. I feel so sorry for those women because we don't really know their names. I did. I couldn't even find the name of his first wife. Oh, wonderful. I know, right? Like, she just drops out of history Shouldn't entirely. Shouldn't there be a marriage certificate somewhere? But you'd think so, wouldn't you? But yes. I, I did a, I did a good search. And okay. <laughs> if someone can find it, that would be amazing, because I'm really curious to know more about his wives. But sure. But it just doesn't seem to be that much information. I'll look on Ancestry.com. Absolutely. So the two of them made money through crime. Great. And Wilde learnt more uh, about... The, pe- the various people involved, how thieves would operate, where they'd fence their goods, anything like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, he and Mary made a pretty good team. They had a particular scheme. Oh, yeah? Called the buttock and twang. Oh, my God. <laughs> Go on. Mary, the buttock, would lure men to her, basically, as a sex worker. She'd lure them down dark alleyways. Right. And then Jonathan Wilde would bludgeon them with a cudgel, and he was the twang. The two would then rob the man and leave before he recovered his senses. Oh, my God. Okay, but I love that they're still being like, oh, yeah, in the 1700s, men love dad ass. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. Um, They were really successful with this, basically, because... You, it would be very difficult for them to be caught because, as it is said, either they would be senseless from the cudgel yeah. or if they managed to regain their senses, then they would have a hard time chasing after the pair with their trousers around their ankles. Oh, my God. Yeah. Which is one of the reasons I think that Mary Milliner probably was a sex worker. Fair. And we have already talked about like how ridiculous London was in the 1700s yeah. when we talked about the London monster. Yeah. And the fact that there were constantly just crowds of people everywhere yep. just hanging out and trying to get with prostitutes or yep. nice young girls who are just trying to pass them in the street. Absolutely. Uh, so the pair was so successful that they actually managed to buy a pub. Oh, good for them. Yeah, it was called the King's Head. Mary ran Basic. the up- Yeah. Mary ran the upstairs and Jonathan Wilde ran the downstairs. Okay. So basically you had the pub down below and, and the brothel? brothel up above. Great. Yeah. Okay. All right. I'll accept that she is probably a sex worker then. Absolutely. <laughs> now, innkeepers at the time, particularly in the East End of London, commonly doubled as fences for stolen goods. Okay. So Wilde obviously entered into this business as well. Awesome. Yep. But he also saw an opportunity because fencing stolen goods had become increasingly difficult. There was kind of an explosion in crime in London in the sort of latter part of the 17th century mm-hmm. uh, because basically London had become this big commercial hub. So there was a lot of money rolling around and a lot right. of, you know, goods. So increasingly strict laws were put into place to make the movement of stolen goods really difficult. Wilde, however, managed to use these laws to his advantage by playing both sides. Okay. So 
the general way that his operation would work was a thief would steal something. Mm-hmm. Wild would then offer to retrieve the item in exchange for a sum of money. Okay. Like, he would offer this to the victim. So they would pay and he would return the stolen item. And the thief who was in on it got a cut of the cash. Right. Okay. So really it's more of a con or an extortion, I guess. Than- yeah actual theft and you know fencing it's a clever idea it is clever um particularly because many thieves at the time were having problems because they couldn't fence goods for a lot of money because the traditional fences were harder to get to because of these laws so they would typically go to pawnbrokers who would give really bad prices yeah and wilde exploited this like when people would come into his pub and his pub was generally full of thieves he would point out to them that they were getting really bad rates on their goods. Yeah. So maybe they should get into business with him. Uh, Sometimes the victims would basically be like, hang on. Yeah. How are you planning to get the items back? And Mm. how are you like... How would you do that? Yeah. Yeah. How are you so sure that you're going to be able to do this? And what's in this for you? Because Wilde would basically say that the money was for expenses. Like he he wasn't running this as a as a you know a business. Oh, it was a right. service. Okay. And when people would suggest that you know maybe there was something else going on here, apparently Wilde would be shocked, shocked <laughs> that they would impugn on his honor. So good day, sir. And of okay. course they go, oh no, I'm sorry. Please get my stuff back. Great. Yeah, I know, right? Amazing. <laughs> How dare you, sir? I am a gentleman. <laughs> He was not a gentleman. No. Um, his ability to retrieve stolen goods became legendary. Like, how, Like this is amazing. He can just get anything back. And we have got to start keeping tabs on these people who are amazing at something. I know, right? I mean... <laughs> it's quite clear that they are just involved in some sort of nefarious scheme. Yes, we've had a few of these people and yeah. they're always running scams. Yeah. How are they so good at this? Yeah. I mean, he was amazing at it. His new fencing business was thriving. Oh, good. Yeah. Not that sort of fencing. I can see your face. No, 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 no. <laughs> I was just I was just laughing at like, oh, good. Yay. He's... um. Doing well at crime. I know, he's a great criminal. Uh, He also had enough thieves working with him that he could now steal to order. Basically, not just relying on whatever a thief could pick up in their ordinary, you know, working day. Right. (laughs) And between his work as a thief, an offence, and Mary's work as a brothel madam, quite a lot of power in the criminal underworld had become centred around them. Right. And as I said, there was a great worry about theft in London at the time. The city had become this commercial hub. And also, the advent of daily newspapers meant that there was a lot of fear being whipped up about the criminals of London. The 24-hour news cycle starts here. Yeah, pretty much. So Wilde was approached by a man called Charles Hitchin. Okay. In 1711, Hitchin had bought the position of city's under-marshal. What is that? Basically, the chief of police. Okay. He is the official head thief taker. Okay. And he bought this position, basically through corrupt means, yeah. by donating to uh, a member of parliament. Amazing. £700. Oh my God. Which is, in modern money, a little over £100,000. Why did he think this was worthwhile? Well, because it put him in a really advantageous position because Charles Hitchin was not a good person. Oh, really? (laughs) Yeah. You shock me. (laughs) So it seems that with thief takers, there was this idea that the best people to be thief takers were criminals because because they knew that world. And they're doing, they they're the literally right doing the um, set a thief to catch a thief. Exactly. Okay. But, but this seems to be the sort of prevailing idea at the time to the point where if you were a successful thief taker, then you could have your own crimes pardoned in exchange for getting other criminals. Oh my God. And this is as well as the bounty. So being a thief taker was, you know, risky because, you know, fighting people basically. Yeah. But also could be very profitable. And Charles Hitchin was one such person. Right. Hitchin used his power to 
basically run extortion schemes. Uh, he would get his friends and his operatives out of prison. He would selectively target rival criminal groups. Mm-hmm. And he was also guilty of another crime, which I will talk about later. Ooh. I know. You keep doing this. I know. That's just because this is just, it's just so mad. Okay. Okay. So Hitchin recruited Wilde into the business of thief taking and Wilde took to this readily. I bet. He knows who everyone is because he's the one who fenced their goods. Exactly. The pair worked really well together and Wilde kind of rose through the ranks, effectively becoming Hitchin's right-hand man. Right. Now this was going fine until 1713 when Hitchin was found guilty of corruption. Really? Yeah. Yeah. And he was suspended from his post of marshal. But he got the post of marshal because of corruption. Yeah, I know. It's it's just mad. It okay. just seems like it, it's it's the Wild West out there. It really is. <laughs> what the hell's going on? So during this time, Hitchin couldn't operate freely. So he handed over the duties of running his criminal enterprise to Jonathan Wild. Right. Now, another thing that was going on during this time was called the War of the Spanish Succession. I don't know if you know that much about this. I'm not really going to go into it very much here. Is this the one where the Spanish started going into um, the Netherlands? Is that the War of the Spanish Succession? I have no idea. Okay. Um, I suspect not, because I think the Netherlands was kind of on the same side as Spain. Okay. Because it seems like it was a lot of continental Europe. Right. Against Britain, Portugal, and Eastern Europe. Okay, cool. Uh, So... We're always on the side of Portugal, though. Yes, we are. (laughs) But uh, this war had been going on since 1701. Okay. By 1714, Britain had basically ended its part in the war and had recalled a load of soldiers home. And this meant a huge increase in crime because suddenly there were a lot of soldiers who had a lot of time on their hands and few opportunities. Man, that always happens. Yeah. So as a result, basically Hitchin's suspension was revoked because they're like, we need you, Charles Hitchin. We need you to deal with all these soldiers. (laughs) (laughs) Great. So Hitchin's really happy. You know, he's going to return to his offices and everything's going to be ticking over nicely. And he comes back to find out that during his absence, Wilde had taken the opportunity to cement himself at the top of the pyramid in all but name. Really? I know, right? Shock horror. My God. Yeah. So Wilde had opened up his own office near the old Bailey. (laughs) Oh my God. And he described himself as Charles Hitchens' deputy. Right. Which was a title that he made up. There was no official title for that. (laughs) Um... And most of Hitchin's criminal enterprises were now tied up with Wilde, who was ever-increasing in wealth and power. Okay. During this time, Jonathan Wilde, he started taking to dress in really fancy clothes. Uh, He carried a sword with him at all times as a mark of his authority and was basically kind of presented himself as a gentleman. Okay. To the point where, very sadly, he decided that he could no longer associate with Mary Milliner. Oh, no. Because she was now so far beneath him. So so he's just decided that he's a gentleman now. Yeah, because he's wealthy and powerful. Right. And... You can't do that. (laughs) Well, he did. Oh, my God. And to be honest, I think that the upper classes had no idea of how to deal with crime in the city. So the fact that he was successful meant that, you know, he could pretty much get away with murder. Great. Figuratively and literally. Oh my God. Um, Okay. But anyway, so he dispensed with Mary Milliner and in some stories, and this is really nasty, in a kind of vindictive streak, he cut off her ear when he left. Oh my God. Which is apparently one of the punishments that uh, prostitutes could have forced on them. Oh my God. Yeah. Okay. I, I couldn't get absolute confirmation of this. There are a couple of places that told this story. I don't know. Okay. Well, either way... Uh, Wilde continued to kind of dismantle Hitchin's criminal empire and build up his own. And he would do this by selectively arresting the criminals who were still loyal to Hitchin, who basically hadn't gone over to Wilde's side. Right. 
But he also, and this is very canny of him, he made use of the press. Okay. He sold stories of his fights with thieves and criminals, and they basically turned him into a little folk hero. Oh, that's really clever. Okay, because everyone wants stories of, like, horrible murders and all that kind of well, thing, right? at this time, it seems like it was kind of the reverse. Oh. Uh, it's actually, it's during Wilde's lifetime that there's a bit of a switch to, you know, the anti-hero and the roguish figures being, like, these interesting people. And prior to mm. that, people liked, you know, the authority getting involved. Right, okay. Um, but not just that, Wilde also had a double use for the press, which was to print out blackmail ads. What? Yeah. How can you advertise blackmail? So this is what he would do. And I actually have an example of one of his blackmail ads here. Okay. So this says, Lost the 1st of October, a black chagrin pocketbook edged with silver with some notes of hand. The said book was lost in the Strand near Fountain Tavern about seven or eight o'clock at night. If any person will bring a aforementioned book to Mr. Jonathan Wilde and the Old Bailey, he shall have a guinea reward. Okay. Now this is a coded extortion. He's not actually asking for the book. He's telling the owner of the book that he has it. Right. And not just that, but that he knows the person's name. Those notes of hand are agreements of debt, which means signatures. Right. So he already knows the name and the notebook's owner. Also, he's telling the owner that he knows what the owner was doing when he left this notebook because the Fountain Tavern was a brothel. Okay, right. So the real purpose of the ad is to threaten the owner with publicly announcing that he'd been hanging around these brothels and the reward is actually the price for the return of the pocketbook. Okay. A quick note, I have a feeling that a pocketbook is actually a wallet. That might well make sense. But I only think that because they keep trying to steal them in uh, Oliver Twist. Oh, right. Well, either way, it's got loads of debt in it or whatever. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Now, by 1718, Charles Hitchin, who had lost his criminal empire, decided that he had had enough of Jonathan Wilde. Wilde was far too powerful. It looked like he was going to have a stranglehold on all the crime in the city. And Charles Hitchin is like, I'm going to get my revenge. Okay. So he publishes a manuscript called A True Discovery of the Conduct of Receivers and Thief-Takers in and About the City of London. Not a great title. No, but I love using discovery in your title, like a discovery of witches. Yeah. (laughs) So in this manuscript, he accused Jonathan Wilde of being the source and manager of crime in the city. Oh my God. Which, you know, is true. Yeah, but also... Hitchens, like, I mean, you've been doing that too. <laughs> yes, but at this point, no one really cares about Charles Hitchin. Like, I think he was still city under Marshall, but right. he had no power. Okay. Everything was wild. Ha! <laughs> uh, so, Jonathan Wilde, in response to this, he published his own manuscript called <laughs> okay. An Answer to a Late Insolent Libel. Ooh. And in this, he accused Hitchin publicly of the other crime he was responsible for that I mentioned earlier. Ooh, which is? Hitchin was gay. Oh, no. Hitchin had basically, was known to visit what were called molly houses. I've heard of molly houses. I thought you might have done. I don't know if our listeners have. I don't know how common the term is. No, I've only heard of it because my brother did work on queer history in London Ah, and he told me about them yeah so do you want to tell our listeners about them or what you know about them well so what I know about them is that effectively they're kind of pretending to be taverns Mm -hmm. but they are effectively a place where gay men could go to hook up yeah that's basically it sometimes they weren't taverns sometimes they were meeting rooms or like uh, card like a house game or something but basically anywhere that you could conceivably get people to meet together could be these secret gay brothels. Yeah. So, of course, everyone is scandalised by this because yeah. this is super illegal at the time because gay people, ew. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I feel like we should do a disclaimer here. That is not our opinion no, of gay people. No, of course people. not, no. But it was the opinion of people at the time. Yeah. So Hitchin attempted to rebuff this in another manuscript, but the fact that, you know, he had been suspended for corruption 
and there were now these rumours and accusations of him being gay meant that no one really listened to him. Right. So using that information against him, Wilde had basically completely eliminated Hitchin as a threat. So at this point now, he truly had a monopoly on crime and at this point took to styling himself as the thief-taker-general of Great Britain and Ireland. Amazing. I feel sorry for Hitchin. I know, I kind of do too, even though he was a shit. He was an awful person, but at the same time, it's that whole thing about, like, you can't out someone like that, you know? I know, I know. And especially because I'm pretty sure that my brother told me there was, there were, like, a huge number of Molly houses. Like, people assume that they were kind of, like, very rare and far between. But I think he said something like a quarter of public houses were Molly houses. Like, it was a lot. So there were a lot of people, you know having same-sex relations. Yeah. They can't look down on Hitchin, but they're going to. Yeah, absolutely. Um, With Hitchin, there are some suggestions that some of the stuff he did was through, like, extorting or, like... Yeah. You You don't get a pass for being an asshole just because you're gay. But still, I I feel like that shouldn't be the thing that gets him undone. I know, but unfortunately, this was the time. Okay. So Wilde is in complete control uh, to the point where he was actually, in 1720, he was consulted by the Privy Council on how to deal with crime. Oh my God. So now he was effectively, you know, suggesting what laws should be put in place. (laughs) Great. Yeah, this is exactly the guy he wants in charge. Yeah. Now his response was that there should be tougher laws on fences and the the removal of stolen goods. Right. And also an increase in the reward for the capture of criminals. I bet he wants an increase for the re- <laughs> in the reward for the capture of criminals. Now, the mad thing is, the government did both of these things. Great. Which not only made it harder for any of Wilde's opponents to fence their goods, yeah. but it also meant that the money that he was getting for his regular thief-taking work massively increased. Yeah. Now, prior to this, the reward for catching a criminal was £40. That's pretty damn high. Yeah, that's almost £6,000 in modern money. Oh my God. It went up to £140. What? Yep. I know. It's it's so mad. That's so much money. But it just kind of goes to show... And everyone's a criminal, so (laughs) it's really easy to do that job. Yeah. Um... Wild, I think, boasted that he personally, like, by himself had sent over 120 men to the gallows. Oh, that's sad. I know, right? It's kind of grim. But and it- also, that's, like, what, £4,800? Quite possibly. <laughs> I, 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 we're still both a bit ill. I can't yeah. do the maths in my head that quickly. <laughs> Now, this I kind of see as the high point in Wilde's criminal career. Like, he's not only got huge amounts of wealth and power, like, he's got the ear of the government. Yeah, and he's literally being like, give me more money and make it impossible for anyone else to do my job. Yeah, basically. Um, Unfortunately for him, things began to slip a little. Mm. And this was because of a thing called the South Sea Bubble. I know about the South Sea Bubble. Do you? I do. Uh, do you want, again, do you want to tell it or shall I? Uh, you can tell it. All I remember about it is that it's effectively like people, a lot of people invested well, in something yeah. and then they went broke. So in 1711, the South Sea Company was set up and it was kind of a public and private partnership that was also designed to help the situation of the national debt. Right. So the government had its stake in it. And in 1713, the company was given exclusive rights to the trade of African slaves to South America. Oh my God. Now, the thing is... I did not know that. Yeah. But the thing is, during this time, Britain was still involved with the War of Spanish Succession. Right. And a lot of South America was in the hands of... The Spanish. Okay. Yeah. So the company, it seems, never actually engaged in any slave trade at all. Oh, my God. But they technically had a monopoly on it. Right. They never got any profit, but they were seen as hugely successful. And a lot of people were investing in it, which meant that it 
seemed really successful. Exactly. And they started getting involved with, more involved with government debt. I think possibly beyond just the British government. Okay. But they were involved in, you know, just moving debt around, basically. Great. And the share prices kept increasing. Yeah. And by 1720, the share prices peaked and then dropped sharply yeah. to only slightly above the flotation price from when it was initially put on the market. I think the South Sea bubble is like a major plot point in Vanity Fair by William Makepeace Thackeray. I think oh. it's that specifically uh, makes somebody turn from being a gentleman yeah. like who is moneyed into like part of a family that's impoverished it doesn't surprise me thousands of people mm. lost a lot of money apparently it's the reason why there were so many governesses in oh, the really? early victorian period oh. is because so many family like so many people invested their money in this who were yeah. this wealthy middle class not expecting to ever work yeah educating their daughters but then not expecting anything to happen. And then suddenly they all lose money and there are all these women who actually need to work now. Yeah. And that's the only thing they can do is governessing. So suddenly governesses everywhere. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, to be honest. Mm. So the effects of this were pretty long-lasting. And one of the sort of social effects was that there was a lot of public anger towards corrupt people in high office. Understandable. And those who had authority were now viewed a lot more sceptically than they were before. Okay. But meanwhile, tales of roguish figures, anti-heroes and horrible murders became much more popular. Because they're like sticking two fingers up at the establishment. Exactly. And then we get Jack Shepard come along and we're like, wonderful. What a wonderful link. I was literally about (laughs) to say roguish figures such as Jack Shepard. Yeah. So by the time Jonathan Wilde was trying to recruit Jack Shepard and arresting him when Shepard refused to join, public sentiment was very much against Wilde and in favour of Jack. Okay. So this was 1724 at this point, which was kind of the year of Jack Shepard. And basically, no matter what Wilde did, his public stock went down and Shepard's just went up. Yeah. And this culminated in the court case, which we mentioned last time, which was, I believe, Jack Shepard's fourth escape. Mm -hmm. Now, what had happened is that Wilde had arrested a man by the name of Joseph Blueskin, as his nickname, Blake. Don't know why he was called Blueskin. Don't know if he woaded himself up or something. (laughs) But he was a highwayman and... Jack Shepard's kind of primary partner next to Edgeworth Bess. Oh, okay. I didn't really talk about him because, to be honest, they just kind of did crimes together. There's there's not much sort of interesting stuff to tell there. But this was the man who, in court, took out a knife and stabbed Jonathan Wilde in the neck. Oh, awesome. Okay. And of course... People went on his side. Yeah. And of course, as I said in the last episode, this meant that Jonathan Wilde had to take out many, many weeks to recover. Yeah. So just like with Hitchin, there was suddenly, you know, he wasn't there. Yeah. He couldn't manage his criminal enterprise. And this left a power vacuum. But also, isn't this mad that um, during a court case, someone managed to stab somebody else? Yeah. Life has really moved on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So by the time uh, Jonathan Wilde returned to his position, all healed up and no longer neck stabbed, Mm -hmm. he had much less power than before. Right. Because bits of his empire had been carved up and were now being controlled by other people. Yeah. So this got to the point where in like trying to manage his operation as he did before, trying to get someone out of prison meant that he had to resort to violence. Oh, okay. Which he hadn't had to before because he could just pay off the right people but suddenly he'd lost a load of contacts people weren't listening his authority wasn't there anymore yeah and this kind of marked the beginning of the end because him doing this through violence led to the other criminal leaders who had sprung up to basically go we don't think he should be around anymore he's going to cause us a lot of trouble so they tip off to the authorities about the location of a warehouse owned by Jonathan Wilde okay And the authorities raid it, and the warehouse is full of stolen goods. 
including, awesome. including, and this is amazing, a set of jewels which had been stolen from the initiation ceremony of the new Knights of the Garter what? a year before. Oh my god! Yeah, that's right? mad. It's so mad. We mentioned the Knights of the Garter in passing like two weeks ago. Yeah, as well. we did. We we did. <laughs> <laughs> oh my I mean, god it's kind of cool yeah but yeah at like the same that time, is a cool jewel theft yeah. right there but of course this means that wild is bang to right yeah he tries to pin it on someone else but no one is willing to take the fall for him now he's right, lost yeah. too much of his power so it's a shame he couldn't pin it on jack shepherd i know he just right escaped. yeah <laughs> <laughs> at this point jack shepherd might be dead yeah that's what i was thinking yeah <laughs> <laughs> like that would be the reason why he yeah. couldn't pin it on him so with not just public tide but his kind of professional tide turning against him jonathan wilde's former gang members decide he's not worth it anymore and they give evidence against him at his trial oh god the whole of his operation became public knowledge all the extortions his like method of getting thieves to steal stuff and then you know kind of selling it back to people people. yeah everything becomes public knowledge oh my god and he is absolutely sentenced to death yeah I should also point out, this was quite a fun thing. His trial was on, I think, the same day as the trial of the Lord Chancellor, who was arrested for corruption in the excess of £100,000. Oh my God. Yeah, I know. It's just, I think it just kind of goes to show there was just this real sort of anti-corruption thing going on at the time. Yeah. It's really interesting seeing, like, there's often kind of peaks and troughs with feelings about this. Absolutely. We're in a bit of a trough at the moment. Yeah, we are. Uh, on the morning of his execution, 24th of May, 1725, Jonathan Wilde actually attempted suicide by oh. drinking laudanum. I mean, that's probably a better way to go than hanging. It is. But unfortunately, because he hadn't been eating enough, because, you know, he was in prison, yeah. his body kind of rejected it and he vomited a lot of it up oh, and just no. became really ill and kind of stupefied. Yeah. Like, he was just in a dazed state. So when he was taken from his cell to uh, the gallows at the Tyburn, he wasn't given the traditional drinks at the pubs on the way. Oh. Which, for our, for the, our listeners who don't know, that was a tradition of condemned criminals. Like, on the way from the prison to the gallows, you'd pass by a load of pubs and you'd be allowed to go in and have, like, final drinks there. That's hilarious. I didn't know that was a thing. Yeah. But apparently, I think either because, you know, they said he looks drunk already or because he's really sick. They're like, we're not doing this. We're just bringing him there. Yeah. Now, his hanging was so popular. They sold (laughs) tickets to see him. And apparently, they kept having to get more because so many people bought them. A huge crowd of people wanted to see Jonathan Wilde hanged. Wow. Was this because he was so unpopular? Yeah. Wow. Wow. But there was someone who didn't want Jonathan Wilde hanged. Daniel Defoe? No. Oh. (laughs) This was the hangman. Oh, really? Because the hangman had been a friend of Jonathan Wilde and had been a guest at his wedding to his third wife. Oh, that's awkward. I know. (laughs) So, apparently, when it came to the moment, the hangman would typically give the condemned a moment to compose themselves. Right. So... Jonathan Wilde steps up. He's still, you know, bleary from the laudanum poisoning. Yeah. And the hangman's like, you can take some time to compose yourself. So yeah. Jonathan Wilde takes a moment. And that moment kind of stretches out. It starts lasting a bit of a long time. Because basically the hangman didn't know what to do because he really didn't want to hang his friend. That's so sad. I know. But the thing was, the crowd... The huge crowd really wanted to see Jonathan Wilde hanged. And we know these crowds were insane because they like pummeled our last guy to bits, right? Yeah, there's actually, I discovered possibly more of a reason for that uh, than we had suspected. Um, But yeah, eventually it got to the point where it looked like a riot was going to break out. So the hangman kind of had no choice. Yeah. He carried out his duty and Jonathan Wilde was executed. Uh, he was buried in secret in the churchyard of St Pancras's old church next to his third wife, Elizabeth Mann. Okay. He was only buried for a few days, though, before he was dug up mm-hmm. and his remains were taken away for dissection. What? 
Now, the thing is that dissecting corpses at this time was kind of a big no-no. Yeah. Except there was a provision allowed for the dissection of criminal corpses. Okay, yeah. So a condemned man could have their body exhumed and it would be dissected for the purposes of science. But wouldn't they want to do that before they inhumed them? Well, they normally would, which right. is why Jack Shepard was, his body was pummeled. Oh, they didn't want them to be cutting him yeah. up. Yeah. Okay. And it's why he was buried in secret. Yeah. Because otherwise he would have been taken away immediately. The few days is basically, they didn't know where he was. Right. But at okay. this point, I think any corpse was valuable. So yeah. it didn't matter if he'd been in the ground for a few days. Get him out and let's have a look inside him. I feel really sorry for those, like, trainee doctors. Yeah. Now, this does leave a really interesting legacy from Jonathan Wilde, though, because after he was dissected, his skeleton was hung up in the Royal College of Surgeons Hunterian Museum. Okay. Where it exists to this day. Oh, and my you God. can see it. That's pretty cool. I know. Isn't it amazing? We should put a picture of it on the Twitter. Uh, yeah, we should do. Uh, it's in Lincoln's Inn Fields. And I have seen a picture of it. It's really well preserved. I bet. And it just stands there kind of... I mean, it's a skeleton. Yeah. Like, you can't go wrong with a skeleton. Yeah. But it is just kind of cool to know that that is the body of the thief-taker general of Great Britain and Ireland. Now, obviously, he had quite a legacy um the figure of jonathan wilde was really popular for a very long time or at least not popular in the sense of he was popular but the yeah. character yeah. was popular he actually he's mentioned in sherlock holmes is he yeah i i was wondering why his name sounded familiar yeah sherlock holmes says that moriarty is a worthy successor to jonathan wilde oh okay and not just that uh he also kind of appears in uh the beggar's opera Okay. Which is a satirical ballad opera in the 18th century that's kind of considered an archetype, a bit of a watershed moment. Uh, It's still performed to this day. And it has two characters in it, two main characters called Peachum and McKeith. Okay. Now, Peachum is basically Jonathan Wilde. Right. And McKeith is Jack Shepard. Right. But the interesting thing is that in the Becker's opera, they don't just represent... Wild and Shepherd, but yeah. they also uh, represent Robert Walpole and the South Sea Company. Okay, all right. So it's got layers of, yeah. of satire uh, to the point where apparently Robert Walpole, when he first saw the Beggar's Opera, he was like, "This is fantastic! This is amazing!" And then he discovered what it was, what it was satirizing, right. and he was like, "Nope, we're not having this." So the sequel that was planned to it was banned. That's hilarious. Yeah. And kind of for a long while afterwards, Jonathan Wilde was directly associated with Robert Walpole. And that's where you generally see him okay. in these in his legacy. Right. Just a little side note, just going back last week to Jack Shepard, that character, MacHeath, yeah. in The Beggar's Opera, is the MacHeath of Mac the Knife. Yes, he is, isn't he? Because The Beggar's Opera was redone by Brecht. Yeah. And Brecht decided to do um, that song, Mac the Knife. Yeah. And it's all jolly because it's supposed to alienate you from the feeling of, like, death. But... So Mac the Knife is Jack Shepard. Oh, that's so cool. I know, right? I literally studied that with my students because we were doing um, Blood Brothers and I wanted to Ah. explain about, like, the, the... um, sort of alienation style technique, yeah. the ver from Dung's effect yeah. of Mac the Knife. <laughs> well, there you go. It's all about Jack Shepard. That's amazing. <laughs> Thank you for listening to That Time When. You can follow us on Twitter at That Time When 4 and suggest any episodes to us at ttwpod at gmail.com. Thank you, as always, to Kevin McLeod for our theme song, Anachronist, as well as any other music that Barnaby's used in the pod. And thank you for listening. Now go out, invest in eels, and never leave your criminal enterprises unattended. Goodbye. Goodbye.